there are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can light up your funnels. Let's go. This is Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm Chris Mechanic. Join me as we go deep into the secrets of the world's elite marketing minds. Performance Marketing Insiders is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm your man, Chris Mechanic, here with a really exciting guest that I'm very intrigued by and very uh, excited to speak with. He's a talented marketer. He's a data science guy. He uh, is an ad tech person, kind of transformed into you know performance marketer extraordinaire. He does all types of, uh, I, I know paid search is his forte, for instance, or uh, primarily, but I'm sure he's into all other stuff. He's right now the director of performance marketing innovation at healthcare.com. Um, which I was intrigued by that title just because it's like, hey, not just the director of performance, but the director of performance innovation. So I'm super excited to uh, pick your mind about that. He's also kind of a digital nomad in a way, and I've only met a couple digital nomads. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about that. But ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Curtis Carell. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Me too, dude. I'm excited to have you. So, uh, well, first off, how are you? How are you feeling? Doing well. Doing really Good. well. It's a beautiful day here in Sicily. How are you? It's Sicily. Oh, man. This, I can't believe it. So, in the, in the pre, you know, the pre-call recording, we were talking about this. And we're going to get into it later again, but straight up digital nomad. Like I've known that a lot of people have been doing that. You know, I've heard that people are up and, and we've actually had team members that have done that. Like, like one team member was into sailing there or her husband was into sailing and she just basically was like, Hey guys, like I'm, <laughs> I'm going sailing. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. Um, That's a lot cooler than anything I've done, but <laughs> But no, I want to talk about that, but I want to give the people what they want. And you know that we're all about secrets here. We want to know some of your best secrets. So let's start out with that. Having uh, run the show at healthcare.com, having been at agencies previously, having done your own things, I'm sure, previously, we didn't get into your background before, but what are some of your biggest secrets to success or one of your biggest secrets? Secrets. Yeah, I really got one big secret that has been kind of the guiding principle of, of how I've worked for years now. And it's that Google, Facebook, and all of the other ad marketplaces are trying to automate your job away. And that's a good thing. They're trying to automate your job and it's a good thing. So that's a counterintuitive statement. Add some color to that for me if you could. Yeah. So to unpack that, I think there's really that's it's good for two different reasons. And it depends on where you are in your career. If you've been in digital for a while, that's that you really understand what Google is automating. For instance, Google's my main channel. So I'm probably going to just say Google a lot when I mean all of the search engines, uh, all of the different ad platforms. But uh, Google's really the most advanced. So if, if you have a lot of experience in Google, if you've been working in paid search for a long time, You've seen it time and again. They've expanded match types. They've expanded their yeah. uh, their bidding strategies and all of these different 
things that we used to have control over, they've taken away. And, and yeah. intuitively, that seems really bad, right? It, it makes it harder to differentiate yourself. But really, in reality, what you see is if, if you kind of are, have been around since before those automations went into place, you understand what they're doing. And so you can understand where they're doing it right where it wins and where they're doing yeah. it wrong and kind of exploit some of the the seams and the wrinkles in some of their automation, some of their tools, um, and not just say, oh, target ROAS sounds great. I'm going to turn that on, but right. actually know how to use it in a really effective way uh, and know when not to use it, which yeah. is often even more important. So for folks that aren't necessarily Google Ads experts, it used to be that you could just bid on a keyword with an exact match and Google would just show your ad as promised when the keyword matched exactly. These days, even when you do the exact match syntax, like with the brackets around the keyword, it takes a Google takes a lot of latitude over like close variance, right? Like Ton. Google, like it's almost impossible to do an exact match. So I think that's uh, what Curtis is referring to is things like that. And that's just one of many, many examples. So that sounds overall, Curtis, like a bad thing, but you said it was kind of a good thing. Like, where's the good in this? Yeah. So the, it's complicated. It depends on if you are more experienced or less experienced and there's good for both camps in here. So most marketing folks fall into one of two categories when it comes to the automations that search engines or marketplaces put into place. They either are blindly accepting of them and they just use whatever the best practices that Google or Facebook or YouTube or whoever recommends, um, and they get suboptimal performance from that. Decent, not exceptional. Other people have fallen into the camp of really micromanaging every single detail because that used to be the way to win in paid search and Facebook in these different channels. You used to have such granular control. Uh, that you could just kind of brute force your way into a really successful marketing campaign. Yeah. Today, there's so much machine learning augmenting your campaigns that if you just try to do it all off your gut and your muscle, you're going to actually be fighting against Google or fighting against Facebook and getting suboptimal performance. Yeah. So, so there's a camp of like, let Google do it for you. Great. Like, that sounds right. great. I'll bid more Google. Like, you know what you're doing. And there's a camp of like, nope, Google's out there to steal your money. Like I'm doing everything manually. Right. And more experienced folks tend to fall into that latter camp while new folks tend to fall into the premium, uh, the primary, the first camp, right? Totally. Uh, so the advantage, if you're an experienced marketer is do accept some of these automations, do accept that Google and Facebook and all these companies have the best engineers in the world working to automate your job and they're going to beat you at some things. Yeah. Um, but they don't know the ins and outs of your business. And so you still have to do some things, which is what a lot of newer marketers will fall into is there's this good T-Row as I'm just going to turn it on and tell Google, I want to make two bucks for every dollar I put in. It's going to be under optimized. And so if you're new, Look for those seams in your data where you can tell Google is doing something it shouldn't because Google doesn't have the business context that you have on your accounts. That was a keyword right there. 
look for the seams in your data where Google's doing something that they shouldn't because they don't have the business context. So what you just described, I think, is a concept that we call broad with guardrails, right? Broad with guardrails. And that applies very much to both Google and Meta, Facebook, Insta, whatever. They're all constantly saying, go broad, go broad, go broad. Let us do it. Let us do it. Let us do it. And they're quietly saying, like, provide us the business context, like funnel your data back to us, basically, right? But they're not saying it that loudly, though they are kind of like the Google reps and the meta reps are, but they're super loud with like broad, 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 let us do it. Um. So we call it broad with guardrails. I figure you know what that means, but I want to know how you go about doing that or what's your advice to the listeners that are saying like, okay, great. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Google wants us to go broad. My gut's telling me to keep it micro and granular. Like, what do I do? Yeah. So there's a bunch of things. I think I like the broad with guardrails framework. I think that is probably a term I'm going to start using if you don't mind. But uh, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it, there's a few things. One is is Google and Facebook. They have these tools, and these tools are going to do best if you do give it really accurate data. Uh, so first and foremost, make sure you create that feedback loop for Google and Facebook. Right? They don't have the business context, but they are really good with data. And so if you can, if you're providing them the wrong data, you're going to get you know garbage in garbage out so first and foremost make sure that doesn't happen so let's provide you, a quick example actually no keep going keep going keep going yeah once you've done that the important thing is to then start diving into okay we know what google's doing well we know what facebook's doing well now let's figure out where it's missing so to give a real world example right uh with healthcare.com one of our main business lines is is selling insurance leads uh Naturally, these leads perform better while there are insurance agents sitting at their desk taking calls, right? Uh, so basically, that heavily indexes towards a more competitive marketplace where we can sell these for more right, on during business day. days during business hours. Right. Google doesn't know that there's a cutoff at, call it 6 o'clock most of the year, where a lead might lose 60% of its value. Mm. So to use a very, very concrete and and kind of shallow example here, you're going to see likely that Google optimizes across the board, but misses these seam points. And so you'll have a little too high of ROAS at the beginning, you know, during the work hours and a little too low in the off hours. And and Google doesn't know exactly when to cut that. That's, that's an amazing example. And that's absolute fire. Like for anybody running a call center or like a phone call based you know, type of a thing. So basically, Google does not know that your, you know, hours of operation end at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. That's exactly. that's the, like the best concrete example ever. Thank you. So if you're so if you're bidding, like if you're in your campaign and you're saying, "Hey, we'll pay a hundred bucks for a call or whatever you're paying for a call," and you know that the calls during the day are twice as likely to convert into deals of the calls at night, right? Because half the time they don't get picked up or whatever. 
but Google doesn't know that. Yeah. And then I, I, I'd say there's even a corollary too of Google doesn't have an incentive to know that. Um, so in the example of, of healthcare.com, right, we, we actually, you know, give that feedback. We say how much that call sold for to Google and it still misses the signal. Why right. might that be? Maybe it's because their, their engineers missed that in their algorithm, missed that there can be these seam points. Or maybe it's that uh, they have an incentive to keep the marketplace really competitive, you know, 24 hours a day on all the keywords. So I, I think there's a, a mixture of, you know, your business better. And also you have the right incentives. Uh, yeah. Google does not. Facebook does not. So what uh, do you their do? goal is to make. Yeah. I mean, to so, rectify I mean, that situation, I have an idea, but I'm curious about what you would do. Yeah, it can be it can be different things, and and it's tough. I hesitate to prescribe a single solution because Google's changing so much that if you, as soon as you create yeah, a best practice, right. they as might soon not as get this down. is published, it'll be like. Uh, but but no, what I what I think, I mean, what I was going toward was go back to my granular hat, mm-hmm. and I'll just say, okay, Google, I'll clone this campaign and I'll change the hours of operation to my off hours where I know that the calls are worth 30% less and then you can do your thing. Like, so basically I'm going to buck your advice of just putting everything into one campaign in this particular example, this particular use case, like you're not doing me justice. I'm reporting the numbers back to you. Like you're not responding appropriately. Right. So therefore I'm going to take action and put my granular hat back on side, know what I'm doing and take the control back from you until you get your game together. That's exactly right. Or another thing you can do is is kind of, you know, sometimes muscle does come in and you, every day at 6 p.m., you change your target ROAS a little bit and tell Google you want to be more profitable than you actually need to be. Um, mm. And it, it yeah. pulls back. That's, That's a good idea, too. That's a really not good a perfect idea. solution, but... Uh, so just like you know, choke down the bids, like sort of progressively. Right. And I bet that you would see some correlation like, you know, directly after hours, there might be some reps still in the office, but like at midnight, like it's, you know, no go. So you could write a script probably to just choke those bids down. That's exactly right. That's awesome, dude. This is pretty next level stuff. This is fire content. I think this is a great episode. Awesome. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's cool. Once you start getting in those seams in your data, the things you find are, are really kind of crazy and, and tell it, me some other stories like give me another example yeah i mean i think anytime there's there are unique anytime there's something unique about your business there's going to be uh seems like that right so for instance if if what you about have brand like, search what about somebody who's like brand is heavily con- or like brand is heavily searched brand is heavily conquested does is that an issue with you guys yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so I've been in a lot of different places where brand is is kind of sticky, right? So healthcare.com, our our brand is literally our industry. I used to be at creditcards.com. Our brand was literally our industry. So right. people may be conquesting or people may just oh, be that's sloppy. Like the hardest brand <laughs> it scenario. is. That's like and the so, hardest possible brand scenario. If your brand is something like, you know, if you're like a credit karma or something, right? People are not searching credit karma who aren't looking for your business. Right. Um, 
it's a little simpler than right. It's a balance of incrementality and cost. You want to, you don't want to overpay for those clicks. You want to keep people who are conquesting off your brand as much as you can. If you're someone like us who has a really, really competitive brand term, it's, it, it behaves a lot more like non-brand, right? So you want to make sure you're there for those customers. Uh, but you don't necessarily want to hold down a hundred percent impression share because right. you're going to end up paying a ton of money for, for, you know, clicks that might just cascade down to your SEO. Dude, I have a, I have a potential gift for you. It might be cool, but we somehow f- figured out, well, we partnered with a company and we somehow figured out how to write a script, which will suppress your brand ads but only if no competitors are bidding and you're ranking number one organically. Mm. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, sad. I wish like, that would, you can list like who the competitor, like who the you know mm-hmm. competitors to look for are. Cause right. like you might have a competitor from like, you know, uh, Duck, duck, go! Like duck, duck, go! Might be buying a four cent click right. at midnight in Sicily, you know? Yeah, yeah. I've had some freelance clients, for instance, in you know, in e-commerce, where that would be super helpful because you know, no, most of their competitors aren't really that aware of them. They're not getting their terms bid on directly, but occasionally someone will pop up, and being yeah. able to kind of whack them all with them, um, you know, programmatically is is great i've I've sort of done that with um with top of page impression share bidding um historically which is it's a pretty good strategy because if you're doing absolute top right you're you're just saying you always want to be at the top of the page but if you just bid towards generally the top um it's good for deflecting um good for deflecting competition because it pushes people cpcs up in that first position um, even though their ad isn't that relevant and, and makes them more likely to drop out of the space. But something like that combined with a with a script could be really, really powerful. Yeah. So we can talk more about that after this if you like. And and it's such that you can run it in a test mode so you can see how much like how many you call it basically like cannibal like you're sort of cannibalizing your organic right. search in some cases. So there's a way to measure it first, and then if it looks good or if you want to deploy it, you can. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I'm curious about your story a little bit. I want to get into that, but if you could, because this has been so useful, this idea of like providing that business context for Google, because Google's got amazing AI and amazing you know, machine learning, and they have unfathomable amounts of data on every single person listening to this call right now you know everything they've ever google searched everything they've ever all of their gmail you know like can you think like everybody knows that google has a lot of data on you but when you really think about how much data they actually have shocking it's like, oh my God, like I've Googled some embarrassing stuff. Sometimes I go into <laughs> incognito to Google, but they have that too, probably, you know? Yep. So anyway, it's a ridiculous amount and that's where really the power comes in. But give us one other example before we shift into just sort of your background um, about 
like providing business context to Google's robots? Because we're really big on that concept. I want to hear how you explain it. Or like another example, the day parting thing was brilliant. Yeah. So I, I a thing, a playbook I have run everywhere I have been is directly partnering with data, data scientists, right? So you, you know, not if you're in lead gen, for instance, or you're in a, an affiliate, uh, not all clicks or not all leads are, are created equal. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of value that's recognized kind of after the fact of the sale or after the click um, that if you can pull it forward can provide Google really actionable data dense insight. Um, so for instance, to in the affiliate example, if you are, you know, if there's a week, two weeks to your conversion, which has been the case, uh, a lot of places I've worked, sometimes even a month, um, Google really struggles to know, like, why is that happening? They, they just, they don't have the business context. And so what we've done is build lead scoring models or click scoring models that calculate the probability that that will convert and the likely value if it does, and then pulls that back and associates it to the click, uh, thereby giving Google real-time feedback rather than just kind of randomized month-long tail of data mm -hmm. um, and then by doing that you know you can feed those same signals to your landing page decisioning right nice. whether how you order products uh what you recommend to customers so that's um i'd say that's probably the most tangible example of of really tuning what you give to google uh, yeah. is, is quantifying the different business signals you see kind of later on in the customer's lifetime. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've seen tools that kind of promise to do that. And we've done that in some scenarios, which is pretty high volume. You need a lot of volume to be able to do that, to be able to create like a predictive model that you can be fairly confident in. Right. You definitely do. But there's, I think, other, there's different things you can do in sort of a more medium data environment right like yeah, you me. can you can make a rule-based model it may not make sense to have something that's real-time scoring but you can at least say hey we know on our t-shirt shop that the average mobile customer buys you know 50 percent more over the course of their lifetime so we're going to put a rule in that says mobile conversions are worth 50 percent more whatever that whatever that ratio is mm -hmm. um you know, a lot of times it's great to have a machine learning model that that's giving real-time feedback, but a lot of times you can, you know, Pareto principle, 20% of the work, you can create something in a little spreadsheet that'll give you 80% of the impact and, and, you know, attack some of those seams in your data. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it sounds good in theory, but isn't it, I mean, aren't there so many different variables that could go into it that like not all mobile conversions are created equal either kind of a yep. thing yeah so, there's tension right uh, but, data but i feel you though signal. that is a good that is a good solution i think in a in a low or medium data scenario where it's like because think about we have a lot of b2b clients where they're you know they might they're only closing 
10 deals a month or whatever it is. And so we're, you know, oftentimes below the thresholds of conversions in platform, especially on a campaign basis. Right. So I think, but we know that almost all of the useful sessions are going to be between nine to five during business hours and yeah. mostly on desktop. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's right. pretty safe to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's interesting in a B2B world because the data is a lot thinner there. It's, it's space with kind of my, my data science background. It, it can be a little, it's a space I can struggle in, right? Cause, uh, you, you look for that signal and you can sacrifice your, your density of data as well by over segmenting. It is true. Yeah. It's a unique challenge and one that we're, uh, very familiar with. And at the end of the day, the 80, 20 really applies, you know, like it's, you have to use more, I think, overall gut and intuition, and you have to lean much more heavily on user input data. Because yep. in a high volume B2C play where you're like, how'd you hear about us? Open text field. Like you're going to get some crazy, weird answers. Right. Like when it's not thoughtful. But in an enterprise B2B setting, they almost always know exactly where they heard from you and how they heard right. from you. Yeah. So it's the yeah, there's other data mixed with, you know, the quantitative. It's like there's you other get shallow scrappy. funnel conversions you can you can pull in, right? Like they, you know, there's a question of I don't know what what level they are in the company. And if someone answers, you know, C level, they're a more likely decision maker and therefore yeah. more valuable. There's yeah. a lot of different And there's also like a lot of profiling, like um yeah. like tech techno profiling, technographics kind of. So like, yeah, if they're from healthcare.com and like based on your email address, I can see you guys have however many thousand employees, then yeah, you can, you can, you can very much do actually what you're talking about. Like you can right. take what they're, um, what you, so all B2B, all enterprise B2Bs do lead scoring in CRM or in their marketing. Like they all have lead scoring. Right. You can effectively take that, make it better, of course, based on like the PPC data that you're seeing. Yep. Because it doesn't match exactly. And then you can, you can essentially do that on the front end, like on the website mm -hmm. and on the, on the earlier funnel conversions. And you can link into salesforce.com and, you know, the different marketing automation. So like you can, it's almost easier in a way. Because right. like in an affiliate, because like you have that backend Salesforce or marketing automation data in real time, you can pump it back to Google. Yeah, you've got more signal, more, you've got more breadth of data, if not, or more, I guess, depth of data. The rather signals than are like breadth. super loud. Like the yeah. signals are like a big gong in the middle of a sales room. Yeah, like, yeah. Boom. <laughs> you know, yeah. whereas in B2C, it's like, okay, the transaction value is like 11% higher today. Like, does that right. mean anything? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I've always been in the, like, much bigger bigger data, uh, wider data, really, uh, B2C right. space where you've got, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of clicks, um, not, and thousands of conversions, not uh, uh, kind of the rich data that you have in, in your B2B space. Yeah. Yeah, we have clients like that, too. But anyway, 
we're running low on time. I wish I could talk to you for hours and maybe you have some extra time, but talk to me about your background, man. You keep mentioning data science and I see that, but like, tell me about the, the progression of your life and career up until now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, was in college, wanted to do something analytical that studied econ, uh, liked the analytical side of that. Um, saw all my friends going into you know, accounting, investment banking, consulting. I wanted to do something a little different. Uh, wound up at Red Ventures, really cool company, great place to great place to start out. Um, and it was it's kind of like college round two, kind of like grad grad school. Uh, you're able to just go learn what you want to learn, and um, I did a lot of testing there. Learned um, a lot about Google's tech, a lot about our tech, uh, doing paid search there, and um, you know was able to kind of tear up a lot of the best practice we had on, on certain things, on ad testing, on bidding, um, and really found a love for ad tech and collaborating with data science teams there. Um, from there, I worked a couple different places in-house and agency uh, where I you know, continued to collaborate directly with data science teams and, and like more and more kind of intimately there. Um, and then... You know, I was actually freelancing for healthcare.com and, uh, you know, came to the conclusion that there was, there was an opportunity for me to come in house to work on ad tech, data science and marketing. Uh, so at that point, I, I got to learn Python, learn data science and actually kind of work hands on with the data science team, building models and, and, um, uh, you know, really getting to know the other side of the house that I'd always worked with. Um, uh, so I could better marry those things together. So since then, I, I kind of work on a variety of different marketing initiatives. Sometimes it's in the automation space um, and, and data modeling. Uh, most recently, it's been in the pharmacy space where we're launching up our own direct-to-consumer pharmacy uh, and kind of you know project managing that off the ground as, as we start that as almost a startup within the company. I see. Interesting, dude. So when you were at Red Ventures, you were mostly an ad tech person working a lot with data scientists. What does it mean to you to be an ad tech? Like, you know, to be an ad tech, does that mean like you're just a, a specialist on the platform or does that mean you're like a media buyer or are you? Like, yeah. So I, I was, I, my title was a paid search analyst or whatever, you know, something in the paid search realm. Um, and a lot of what we were doing was testing the ad tech they were developing in-house. Uh, so, you know, running a lot of A-B tests of, of Google versus what they had. And at the time, you know, they were actually crushing Google's, uh, t row algorithm, which, which is crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, kind of doubt that's still the case just with how far it's come in the last, yeah. you know, almost decade, but, uh, it's. It was it was a lot of fun. I got to know you know what Google was trying to do, what Facebook was trying to do there, um, and since then I've been able to kind of skeptically ad- adopt those tools from what I, I learned. See. At, at well, yeah, so that informed your opinion a lot. You were like, "Hey, Google doesn't always know what's best." Exactly. So Red then they were they were running ads on Google Search, just using their own tech to do it, and using their mm-hmm. own algos to do it. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I mean, so I, you know, that that's where I learned to like maybe not trust Google. But on the flip side, the the company, one of the big initiatives I led there sounds kind of quaint now, but at the time they had everything on even rotation of ads, so they could get a true fifty fifty read on every single ad. Yeah. Um, and I, I led like a company wide initiative to test letting Google rotate our copy and see if it actually was doing better. Um, and you know, it turns out it was. So it was on one side, I was kind of a Google skeptic, and on the other side, I was actually testing into their best practices on uh, across the company. Interesting. That's really cool, man. So uh, you were at Red for how long? A couple years? Two, three years? Three, maybe four, three and a half, something like that. Yeah. Nice. And and you came from. And what did you study in school? You studied uh, business or concept? economics uh, and languages. Economics and like, like uh, communication. Like yeah, <laughs> Interesting. So, but you've always been, you're like a quant though, right? Like you're more numbers than words. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's actually known that ever since ever since birth. You've known that, or that became a realization after Red. Uh yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't say ever since birth. I mean, I really like. I guess it's kind of funny that in in work, I I love uh, love you know the the data, but in play, I'm more of a linguistics guy and love languages of dabbled in a bunch of different ones since we've been traveling the world and learned uh you know like a couple in college spanish since then wow so you're a true left right brain type of thinker yeah. it's like when you're on the clock your numbers and then as soon as you punch out you go to words i suppose i'm having so many realizations as we talk Chris. <laughs> so they call me dr phil sometimes <laughs> it's like no, man, we're going to wrap up. I want to be sensitive to your time. I've got a few grab bag questions for you. One is like, what do you like to do for fun? Like, what are your hobbies? Yeah, I love, I mean, travel. I do that as, as kind oh, yeah. of a full-time thing. We got to talk about uh, that. We got to talk about that in just a couple minutes. Yeah, but I, I love random sports. Disc golf when I'm in the US. I try to play almost every day. Um, when I'm not... Maybe beach volleyball, surfing, scuba diving, stuff like that. Nice. So you're pretty active, pretty athletic. Um, talk to us about your nomad lifestyle. I'm super intrigued by this. Um, and like I said, I've I've heard about it. I've read about it. We've actually had a couple team members that have gone, you know, basically just digital nomad style. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that, yeah. you know, you don't necessarily have a home base and you're just traveling around. And maybe you do have a home base, but talk to us about how that happened. I guess it was pandemic related, right? No, it actually predates the pandemic. Uh, back in 2019, I think 2018, my wife went remote, um, started her own company. And in 2019, I wanted to join her. I wanted to, you know, see more of, I guess at the time, just see more of the country, uh, see more of the world. And, and you were at uh, healthcare.com we, at that time. No, I was at a uh, tax layer back then. Oh. Um, and I actually left to start an agency, uh, help start an agency, uh, and sold, we sold our house, um, and packed our bags, 
uh, sold all of our stuff and went to Buenos Aires for a few months. Um, came back the weekend that all the lockdowns happened uh, for a wedding, and then we got kind of stuck in the U.S. for a bit. But once uh, things so you got- sold all your stuff before that though. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, twenty nineteen, so early twenty twenty. We were. What uh, was your plan? Just to. So yeah, I mean the plan had been Buenos Aires, then I think Mexico City, and then uh, go over to Portugal. Um, those things didn't happen for an extra year, but uh, yeah, spent twenty twenty one in Mexico uh, mostly. This year, spent in Europe, Mexico, uh, kind of all over, and then you know next year heading back to the U.S. Settle down. I see. Has it caught up with you, the the traveling lifestyle a little bit? A little bit. I mean, I think it's it's been really good. We've met some great friends on the road. Um, but you know, there's nothing like having a having a local community and and uh, you know being around friends, family, all that. Yeah. Where's your home base in the U.S.? We don't have one, but uh, we have family in uh, in Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, Florida. Uh, and South Carolina. So one of those places is probably where we'll wind up. Virginia is near me. Where in Virginia are you guys? Uh, Richmond. All My right. brother owns a cidery in Richmond. Whereabouts nice. are you? Uh, I'm in the DC Baltimore area. So Richmond is probably like three to four hours away. Yeah. But there's yeah, a really cool. healthy uh, tech community. In I mean, Richmond's got a, got a community, but also uh, Northern Virginia. Yeah. Northern Virginia is kind of like in like Northern Virginia, DC, actually, because the government's there. Right. Um, and there's a lot of cool innovation there. That's where AOL.com started. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of like like webby alumni running around starting companies. Right. It's kind of like a little mini Silicon Valley of the East. That's cool. Yeah. And New sort of, York is quite close too. Right. Yeah, we did uh we did a trip up the east coast last summer on amtrak amtrak's great i don't know if you've used it but i love uh, amtrak i love it great people always talk about how like you only get good trains in europe and i I thought amtrak was great we went to boston dc new york maine oh that's Uh, great dude yeah it's awesome it's fantastic this is nothing like getting out of the train station in the middle of the city and you like look up and it's uh you know, you're not in a crappy airport having to wait for your Uber to get you into town. Yeah. It's just like it's so easy to get on and off. Yeah. And it's like quite spacious. Like most of the seats are kind of like first class seats in an airplane in terms of like the comfort and the right. like leg space. Yeah. Yeah, you get there five minutes before your train. Uh and, and you can go to the cafe and have a drink or have a sandwich. Yeah. I don't know how we turned this into an Amtrak ad, but I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm going to call them and be like, hey, you can use this on TikTok. Just give me like five cents CPM. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool, man. Well, this is awesome. Well, let me wrap up here with our grab bag questions. Top three books or educational resources. Ooh, can I say authors? set of books sure yeah you know how some people like uh whole albums i feel like that was written <laughs> yeah. authors works cal sure. newport's my probably my favorite author definitely cal my newport. favorite author deep work digital minimalism uh just a lot of stuff that that 
really inspired the way I, I look at my career. Interesting. Um, there's a book called Shadow Divers that's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got to check that it out. It's, you know? it's by Robert Curson, um, but it's about uh, Richie Kohler and John Chatterton, the two of the best scuba divers in the world who mm-hmm. discovered a, a U-boat off the coast of the U.S. And uh, it kind of like rewrote World War II history. Really, really oh. cool book. Um kind of a throwaway but i i did like the four-hour work week i don't agree with everything yeah. he said uh but i think all of his questions are really really valuable questions and you know as long as you come to your own answers it's a it's a great read nice cool number two what are you investing in uh financially like where are you on the markets like are you are you bearish are you bullish are you buying stocks crypto growth stocks what are you buying yeah, I mean, really, I'm I'm boring. Boring as boring can be on on investing. I uh, try to throw money in the market when it's down, and uh, that's that's what I've been doing. Just index but, uh, funds, basically. just index funds, basically. Yeah. All right, and then finally, what are you most excited about in the future? Whether Ooh. tech or personal, like what what are you jazzed about right now? Yeah, I'm really excited for the next phase of remote work. Uh, I know that's stereotypical for a digital nomad to say, but, uh, you know, I think we're just coming out of the pandemic still. And everyone who was forced remote are are starting to like it. But uh, I don't think they've seen remote work yet, really. Like I, before the pandemic, it was, it was great. You know, you go into co-working spaces and there's just so much energy there but you also yeah. can focus like you can't in an office and uh you know once like the childcare situation clears up for people and uh, things get a little more normal i think remote work is going to really change the world cool well thank you so much curtis this has been an awesome episode i really enjoyed it um if you're listening and you're liking this if you learned anything or if you laughed at all uh, please leave us a like or comment, share it with a friend, and get the word out. Curtis, let everybody know uh, where they can learn more about you or healthcare.com. Yeah, absolutely. So healthcare.com is uh, our site, right? Uh, pharmacy.healthcare.com. Uh, if you if you want to check that out as well, it's it's you know new and growing. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, add me on LinkedIn. I'm not active on any other social media platform, which I know is kind of anathema for a digital marketer, but uh, I like yeah, find, find me on LinkedIn. I like it. Do one and do it right. That's my yeah. philosophy too. Absolutely. Cool, brother. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, let's see you again soon and you have an amazing day. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Chris. Have All a great right. day. You too. Bye. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at performancemarketinginsiders.com. This podcast is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the performance agency that makes you smarter, offering AI-driven search, paid social, analytics, and conversion rate optimization for financial services, health, B2B, and SaaS brands that know. Hey guys, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, you can get a performance marketing assessment for free. And this isn't some cookie cutter automated report. It lays out detailed, specific things you can do right now to unlock limitless growth and nirvana level personal satisfaction. To claim your free assessment, just go to performancemarketinginsiders.com slash audit and you'll have your customer report within just a few days. 